Genesis chapter 40. This amazing story of Joseph's life continues to unfold before us as we look at it with the intentionality of seeing our God of the turnaround. How many of you are enjoying the series so far? Show of hands, how many of you enjoying the series so far? For all of you who didn't raise your hand, just know I'll now struggle for the next two weeks internally with feeling inadequate like a failure in my attempt to teach you the Word of God. So thank you very much for causing me much heartache and despair as I lay down tonight, knowing that you have not enjoyed this series so far. Just kidding, but not really, but kind of, yeah. Anyway, a lot has happened in Joe's life since we first met him. We saw him start out as the golden boy within the family. He's daddy's favorite son, but then soon thereafter, animosity with his brothers set in due to envy and jealousy. They toss him into a pit. They sell him into slavery where he's bought by Potiphar. Things start trending up as Potiphar puts him in a position of being second in command within his house. Then Potiphar's wife happens. She falsely accuses him of trying to take advantage of her. Joseph is thrown into prison. Now I need you to get ready for story time because we got a little bit of ground to cover as we get to the text for tonight. Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse 1. God's word reads, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Which seems like a kind of a weird question to ask people who are in prison. I don't know, Joseph, maybe because we're in prison. Like, it's not really the best of situations. And they said to him, we have had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, 
from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Not too favorable for the baker. He was probably thinking, man, it worked out real good for the cupbearer. I'm going to take my shot at this. I want, what kind of, Joe's telling me what kind of good dream I'm having. And Joe's like, yeah, he's going to kill you. He's going to hang you, and then like these nasty birds are going to come pick at your flesh. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, I know some of y'all probably had some weird dreams before. Like, dreams can just be jacked up sometimes. Like, this is nothing new. People have been having jacked up weird dreams for a long time. Obviously, you can tell, like, even back in Joseph's day, these were having some jacked up weird dreams. Now, fortunately for them, they had Joseph to interpret. I would love to have Joseph come to my house sometimes and try to interpret some of the dreams that I've had before. Just wild and crazy stuff. But obviously, God's hand is upon Joseph in giving him a giftedness to understand what these dreams mean. So Pharaoh has these weird dreams. He can't understand what's going on. So he calls in his magicians. He calls in all these wise men. He tells them the dreams. Nobody can interpret it. Where's Joseph the entire time? He's still in prison. In verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit in chapter 41. We're going to jump over to verse 25. Because all Pharaoh does in those verses is just repeat to him the dream that he's already explained to all the other people. So we're going to skip all that. Fast forward, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Let's go back to chapter 40, verse 1. At the beginning of this part of Joseph's narrative, God's word told us this, that sometime after this, I want to talk about perfect timing for a few moments tonight. The vast majority of us live and plot out our lives on a projected timeline. You're going to graduate high school at this point, and then most of us make plans to set aside a certain amount of time to either go and earn my college degree or enter into this apprenticeship, and I'm going to be in those places for a certain amount of time. And then once I'm done with that, my projected timeline is to be married at this age, is to then have kids by this age, to then at some point in my career to be at a management position by this age, and then I'm going to be retired by this age. But the problem with that is rarely, if ever, do our plans stay on track with our projections. The desired timing of our life events most often don't hit exactly when we plan them out to. So at the beginning of this chapter of Joseph's life, we just read that sometime after this. So the writer who is recounting Joseph's narrative is telling us that sometime after Joseph was thrown in prison, these following things happened. And if we'll take notice, there seems to be a lot going on with time in this part of Joseph's story. Now let me go ahead and just give you the why up front. It's so that we can see that God, in his sovereignty, never mismanages time. Never. How many of you self-admittedly are poor time managers? God never mismanages time. His plans always stay on projection and his timing by which they come about is always perfect. Always. Now let me go ahead and give you the how. How is God in his sovereignty able to have perfect timing to execute his plans? It's because time is not God's confine. It's his construct. We're confined by time in so many ways. It almost feels enslaving at times. Can you relate? You almost feel like trapped by time, like we're almost subject to its will with our lives in regards to how they're lived out in the past and the courses in which they take. But that's not the case with God. He's the owner of time. He's not bound by it. He built it. And this is so significant for our lives and our understanding of how 
in his sovereignty, he is at work within the timelines of our lives. This doesn't relieve us, though, from the responsibility in our pursuit of living for God. We still have to run the race. But this is going to help us in knowing that God designed the course. So I want you to check this out with me. With a God who has perfect timing, even in the wasting, he's working. Time is one of those things that I think we would all agree we seek to make the most of, but oftentimes find ourselves feeling like we wasted it instead. Most of us always seem to make and build the best intentions that we possibly can with our time, but so often find ourselves reflecting on those intentions only to find that we ended up wasting the time that we didn't want to waste. And so we see God working in the midst of even these moments. Perhaps we see wasted time not as a result of our own misguidedness or our decisions, but as a result of us pursuing, even with good motives, something that didn't work out in the end. And so most of us don't willingly go and waste our time. It's just one of those things we find ourselves doing. On the flip side of that, we will make plans or we will set out schemes or make schedules or whatever to try and guide and direct our lives. And we pursue good things with good motives only to find out that at the end of those things that we had been pursuing, it didn't work out. And so we feel like in the midst of those pursuits that didn't pan out, we wasted that time. So time for us can be wasted, I've come to learn, in two different ways, either intentionally or incidentally. Either we do intentionally waste our time by doing things or giving ourselves over to things that we shouldn't be pursuing after, and we know that we shouldn't be wasting time on those things, or we do it incidentally by pursuing good things with right motives that ended up not working out in the ways in which we thought they were going to when we got to the end of it. We can see time wasted due to our own fault, whether that be by being lazy or making poor decisions or giving ourselves over to poor investments. But then at the same time, I think we also fear time wasted even when we're attempting not to. I think some of you sit here tonight and you fear wasted time by pursuing a degree that you think you may not end up using. Some of you sit here tonight and you fear wasting time because you have experienced a relational fallout. And so I, I gave myself to this thing for two or three or four years thinking that this was going to be it, that he's the one and that she's the one, and now all of a sudden it's fell through. That's wasted time. So it seems. I think some of us fear wasting time when you get like me. You were clueless in college, and then you graduate college, and you're still clueless. And you get into a career, and then all of a sudden, that career that you were in feels like now has to have a transition. And so it's just wasted time once again. Like, I can't figure out what I'm doing with my life or where I'm going. I feel like I'm supposed to be here, but maybe I'm really supposed to be here, and I don't know what I'm, and I'm stressing out over it, and i, I got to go to therapy, and I'm taking all kinds of medication, and, and it just keeps heaping on because I feel like I'm wasting what little time that I have. But what I have seen to be true in my life and what I see to be true in Joseph's life is that even in the midst of time that I see as being wasted, God was still working. We're told that Joseph has already been in prison for some time before the baker and the cupbearer ever get there. After he interprets their dreams, he only asked them for one favor. Remember what it was? I know we covered a lot of ground. 
He asked for one favor after he interpreted their dreams. He knew that they were going to be released. He knew they were going to go back into Pharaoh's presence. He said, okay, guys, like, one favor, one trade-off. I, and I set your minds at ease. Maybe not for you, Baker, but, you know, I can't do anything about that. When you get back into Pharaoh's courts, just remember me. Let him know that I'm here. Let, I, let him know, that first and foremost, I shouldn't even be here to begin with. I'm a Hebrew that was stolen out of my land, forced into slavery, innocently incarcerated into a prison that I should not be in. So if you wouldn't mind doing me the favor, like, just mention my name and see if he will release me from this dungeon that I've been in for so long. Verse 23 tells us that they forgot. And then verse 1 in chapter 41 reveals another startling truth to the depths of their forgetfulness by telling us what? That it wasn't until two years later that the cupbearer finally had an epiphany. As Pharaoh's telling him his dream, all of a sudden the light bulb comes on in his head. He's like, I remember my offenses now. Two years ago, I was in prison where you put me, Pharaoh, and there was this Hebrew guy in there. And I had a dream. And he told me exactly what my dream was. As a matter of fact, the baker, you know, the guy that you just hung, the crows are like eating on him out there right now. He had a dream too. And that guy told us what our dreams were, and they both came true. But it was two years later. So for a minimum of two years, Joseph is unjustly stuck in prison at no fault of his own. And if I were Joseph, you know what my reaction would be at this point in my life? What a waste of time. What, what am I doing here? You know how hardly I would have questioned God day in and day out as I sat in that jail in a place that I never should have been in. That all started because my brothers got jealous of me because Dad loved me more. And it sold me into slavery, which led me to Potiphar's house. And all I did there was serve him as faithfully as I could. And because his wife told some lie about me, now I'm in this prison. And my life is wasting away. God, why am I here? What a waste of my time. What a waste of my life. And sometimes, you know, I think we get so frustrated with God over time because we feel like he is so unaware of the urgency of how short our lifespans are here. And we feel like he is just completely ignorant to the fact that I have a limited amount of time here and I'm trying to get stuff done and he's preventing it from happening. It would have been so easy for Joseph to be upset, to be frustrated, to be angry with God, but you know what we're never shown? We are never shown or led to believe that his trust in God ever diminished. You never see it. Not one single time. He just kept trusting and serving and trusting and serving. And you know what? All the while, God was working. He was setting things up in a way for it to all come together at the perfect time. Whether we intentionally or incidentally waste our time, I can assure you God isn't wasting. He's working. 
He is setting things up for it to come together at the perfect time for you to see your need for salvation, for you to see that it was a missional calling that he had upon your life the entire time, for him to show you that they weren't the one that he had somebody else out there set apart for you to meet, for you to see that only he can satisfy and fulfill you in a way that nothing else in this world can. He is pulling it all together in his time. Whether you're wasting it or not, he's working in it. You know, verse 23 in chapter 40, it's a gut-wrenching verse for me to read those sentiments. Talking about the cupbearer. And to see these words that they did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Have you ever felt forgotten? I remember one particular traumatizing moment in my life when I was a young kid. My parents took me to a place called Botanical Gardens. And it was cool, you know, we're seeing all the gardens and stuff. And my mom's in the back of the room. And she's laughing because she knows how this story plays out. And it was fun, you know, we're in this butterfly house, is all I remember. And there's butterflies everywhere. And as a kid, I'm like super intrigued. I'm like, oh man, this is like awesome. So I'm just wandering around following the butterflies. So I didn't know. I wasn't paying attention. I was so entranced by these flying beautiful objects in the air that I didn't realize I had wandered away from the presence of my parents. And for some sick, demented reason on their part, they thought it would be interesting to see what I would do when I realized that I didn't know where they were anymore. And so eventually I figured out that I wasn't next to my parents. And so I began frantically looking. All I can see like, is just massive, tall other people that aren't my parents. And all these plants and how the butterflies aren't fun anymore. They're scary and they're terrifying and they're landing on my face. I don't know what to do. And I'm starting to like, lose, my, lose my control and my grip. I can feel the tears coming. And I'm like, I, don't, I, like, I feel like my parents have forgot me. They, they've gone on somewhere else and they left me here to fend for myself. And I don't know what to do, and I'm, and I'm starting to weird out. And then all of a sudden, I see them coming across the way. And that sense of relief, I was like, oh, my gosh, thank you. It wasn't until years later they told me that they did that on purpose so long. And I'm like, cool. Can't wait to try that out on ground one day. It was the, uh, the fear, though that I had been forgotten about. That they had lost track of me. Or maybe just left me. I didn't know. Let me encourage you with the truth. That your Heavenly Father never forgets where you're at. Nor does He forget the plans that He has established for you. It's operating on his time. We talked about last week how Potiphar put Joseph in prison. But when you look at it at the sovereign hand of God, Potiphar didn't put Joseph in prison. Joseph was placed in prison. And God doesn't misplace his people. He never loses you. It's just a part of his plan. 
It's a part of his timetable unfolding in a perfect manner in your life. It's operating on his time. Let me show you this next truth. And he doesn't rush to the outcome. This is going to be the tough one. This is going to be the tough one. Let's go back to chapter 41. We got a little bit more of this story to pick up. I'm going to start back up in verse 37. So Joseph has interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh's ecstatic over the fact that he now has an inside track on what to do to prepare for this impending famine that's coming. And Joseph had actually made some good suggestions on a plan of attack to prepare them. And so in verse 37, we pick back up and says that this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is where we can find things to be particularly difficult in trusting God's plans. Because we live in a perpetual state of rush. You feel like your life is constantly rushed. We live such fast-paced, hectic lives. And so the moment that we think the arrival of a particular life stage is running late, we panic. And then we frantically rush to and through the next seasons of our life in an attempt to try to make up for lost time. And so I want to show you Joseph's timeline to see if maybe we can't remedy some of this in your life and ease the panic and enhance the trust. So let's look at Joseph's timeline a little bit. Remember, when we first met him, he's 17 years old. He's given a dream by God, which was essentially to show him his calling and what God was going to set him apart to do. But then we see him serving as a slave to Potiphar for an undisclosed amount of time, but it was extensive. The amount of time that he spent in Potiphar's house is going to stretch a little bit longer than what you may think it does just off the pages of Scripture. Sometimes it's easy for us to lose track of sense of time in Scripture because it just moves from chapter to chapter and moment to moment. But it was an extensive amount of time that he would have served Potiphar within his house. 
Then after that takes place, we saw that he's thrown into prison where he remained for we know at least more than two years before being released by Pharaoh. So keep Joseph's timeline kind of in the back of your mind. So after he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh declares him overseer of Egypt. And I, I love how Joseph was quick to acknowledge that it wasn't he who could interpret the dreams, but it was God who enabled him to do so. Joseph is always quick to give credit where credit is due. And the only one who is due credit is God. And so Joseph said, it's, it's not me. Pharaoh's like, I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph's like, I can't, but my God can. And he can deliver that interpretation through me. So he's always quick to give God the credit. But look at this. Go back to verse, go back to verse 46. I want to read this again. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So after he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh declares him overseer over Egypt when Joseph was 30 years old. 13 years have gone by before Joseph has now reached a point where it appears that God is bringing the dream that he was given as a 17-year-old teenager to reality. 13 years has gone by since his brothers had sold him into slavery. 13 years has gone by since his location had changed to Egypt. 13 years has gone by since Potiphar's wife has falsely accused him and incarcerated him in his innocence. But listen to me. It was more than his brothers selling him. It was God selecting him. It was more than Egypt being his placing. It was God's positioning. It was more than Potiphar's wife accusing. It was God's affirming. It was more than him being in prison. It was him being in preparation. God's sovereign hand is all over Joseph's timeline. If you would just take a step back and see it. In the same sense, it's going to be all over your timeline as well. God selected Joseph for something special, positioned him in Egypt because that's where it would go down, and then used an accusation of a lying woman to affirm the giftedness that he had placed upon his life with two prisoners in a pit that was being used for his preparation, all spanning across 13 years of his life. Now listen to me. Abraham waited 25 years to see the promise of Isaac's birth come to fruition in his life. Moses was 80 years old when God appeared to him in the burning bush to go back and liberate his people from Egyptian bondage. Joshua waited 40 years in the wilderness before God released him to be the leader of the people going into the promised land. David waited 15 years from the time that he was anointed to become the king of Israel. Even Jesus walked the earth for 30 years before he began his earthly ministry. And you're worried because you're 19 and you don't know what to do with your life yet? You're worried because you're 22 and you think maybe you chose the wrong degree path? You're worried because you're 25 and you're still single? And you feel like God's path is still hidden from you? No. Listen to me. If you have been born again into Jesus, He has set you apart for something specific. But he's got to get you into position. And then he has to provide you with opportunities for affirmation because he knows how we struggle with that doubt stuff. And as he does so, it all begins to unfold as a part of the preparation that he is taking you through to step into what he has placed on you so that he might be glorified through you. Out of his grace... 
God doesn't rush to get you to that point because he knows when you got there, you wouldn't be ready. And if he doesn't rush us, my suggestion is that we shouldn't rush him. I want to address something real serious right here as well. And that's you people that are known as left lane drivers. Nothing makes me want to rage more than left lane drivers. And just out of, out of gentleness and kindness and respect, in case you're one of those people, let's just have a teachable moment. The left lane, it's not for driving in. That's for passing. You drive in the right-hand lane, and then you leave the left lane open for people to pass that are going faster than you. And this does not infuriate me more. There is not a street on this planet that infuriates me more seeing this happen than the street that brings you to this church week in and week out. And I drive it every single day. I think it's God in his humor trying to chill me out a little bit. I, it drives me nuts when two people get side by side in the right and left hand lane and won't go for the love of God. I'm going to have a heart attack. Like, quit driving in the left hand lane. It, 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 it goes back to what I said earlier. We live our lives in a state of perpetual rush. And I do that as much as anybody. I don't like, I don't like driving. I feel like driving is a waste of time. And so when I have to drive somewhere, it's very prudent to me that we get there as quickly and effectively as we possibly can. That's why we go on family road trips. When somebody asks to use the bathroom, I'm like, no! It feels like a waste of time. But every time we go somewhere and I get in this kind of state, like you can see, it, I'll, I'll, my face will start flushing. I'll start squirming around in the seat. I get over in the left-hand lane. I get back in the right-hand lane. I get back over in the left-hand lane. I get back in the right. And my wife, she can't stand it. And eventually she will be like, you need to calm down. <laughs> and then she'll inevitably follow it up with, we'll get there when we get there. The most important thing is that we get there. And some of y'all are trying to rush God on things. He knows how to handle his time. He knows how to handle your life. Some of us, as we follow his calling and his purpose that he has placed upon us, need to calm down a little bit. He'll get you there when you get there. The most important thing I think we would all agree is that we get there. Let me tell you something. You're going to get yourself in bad, bad trouble if you start trying to get yourself out in front of his leadership. God does not call us to walk in front of him. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even call us to walk beside him. Jesus said, follow me. 
In other words, I'm going to leave you the footprints to follow in. But you can't see them if you're beside me or in front of me. He's not going to rush to the outcome. So you shouldn't have to worry about it either. You'll get there when you get there. Tell you guys, sat in the seat that you sat in, wondering what in the world am I going to do in my life? How is this going to work out? God, just show me the path. You just show it to me. I'll go down and I promise I will. I got a degree. I spent all my time doing all that stuff. My my family paid the money for me to do that. I did it as quickly and as effectively as I possibly could. And I got out and I thought, okay, now we got to make the next moves. I got to get married. I got to have the kids. I got to buy the house. I got to get the job. I got to do all those things. Worrying all the while, God, is this really what you want me to do? And it wasn't until I was 25 years old that God solidified to me the path he wanted me to go down. Listen to hey, Everybody take a deep breath. And I let it out. He's got it, okay? Just surrender and submit to his leadership. He will take you to the place that you need to be in. And he will do it in his perfect timing. And then when you get there, here's your last truth. You can be even more encouraged because you can know that he won't fumble at the finish. He ain't going to mess it up. It's not going to fall through. I make plans all the time in my life and they fall through. Never once is God's plan for your life going to fall through. You go back to the text, chapter 41, verse uh, 47. It says that during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe. In the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the earth. In his perfect timing, God has once again executed another turnaround in Joseph's life. Can you see the parallels? Have you picked up on them? Joseph, at the beginning of the story, was, was a dreamer. Look, here comes this dreamer having dreams. God's giving him dreams. Let's throw him in this pit. Let's see what becomes of them dreams now. Did you notice when Joseph was in prison? The two of Pharaoh's officials come, and what do they have? Dreams. And lo and behold, who's there? Joseph. The man who, who is an experienced dreamer. The man who knows all about the dreams that God can give people. Can you see the parallel? Can you see the turnaround? 
Joseph may have thought at some point in time his dream that God had given him was dead, and yet all of a sudden he's back in the dream business once again. And once again, God had moved him from a prison to a palace after he interprets the dreams. Pharaoh releases him from prison. Once again, the turnaround takes place. I'm in prison, but now I'm in a palace. He was once a slave, and now he's a superior. It's a turnaround. God is moving things in a 180-degree direction. Once again, Joseph is clothed with robes of honor. Did you see that? Go back and see it again in chapter 41 and verse 42 after Pharaoh pulls him out of prison. Look at what he does. It says that he took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. When we first met Joseph, he's got on his coat of many colors. His brothers took it from him. But God, over the span of 13 years, turns it back around and says, Joseph, here's your coat back. Here's a ring on your hand. Here's my blessing and my favor is still upon your life. It's never left. And even beyond that, the blessing continues. We, we say that God blesses Joseph with his own family. Imagine how heartwarming it was for Joseph to have been given a partner. Be given a, a, a wife of his own. Imagine how heartwarming it was for him when he, he witnessed the birth of his kids. And I imagine he probably never thought he would see these things. These things that Joseph are, is seeing is the reality of dreams coming true that he never thought were going to come to pass. And yet God bless him with a family. He gives him a wife. He gives him kids. And look at what Joseph chooses to name him. He says, hey, here's Manasseh. And I'm naming you such because my God has made me forget all my hardship, all the wrongs that my family has done to me, all the heartache, all the pain, all the hurt, all the scars, all the wounds that they have produced in my life in this moment. And I see my son, I see the promises of God fulfilled in my life. He has called me to forget my hardships. Man, you think God can't take your pain? You think God can't move you past that? You think he can't bring healing? Then, uh, then he has Ephraim. And he says, here's Ephraim. Oh my goodness, what a blessing. I'm going to name you such because my God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The place that was meant to end me, the place that was meant to bring me down, the place that was meant to crush my dreams is the place that God has brought fruit in my life in. What is a turnaround? A complete, utter turnaround. And at the very end of it all, look at what happens. Chapter 42. Verse 1 says, When Jacob, Jacob is Israel, that's, this is Joseph's father who thought Joseph was dead. Remember his brothers lied about what happened to him. Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. And he said to his sons, Joseph's brothers, why do you look at one another? Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine in the land, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Remember Joseph's dream that he told his brothers? One day, I don't know how, I don't know why. God has set me apart, but I envision me being in a position where you're going to come and you're going to bow before me. And they scoffed. They hated him for it. They tossed him in the pit. Thirteen years later, you know what's just been fulfilled? 
the dream, the calling that God placed upon Joseph's life. His brothers don't even realize it right now. That's why he had to come back next week. It just keeps getting better. The turnaround just keeps happening. It's not over yet. It's the realization of what God has placed upon his life, and it all happened. It all happened in God's timing. Listen, it, it just took a while before Joseph got to see the turn. It took a little while. It took some time. But that's okay when it's God's time. You know, the biggest, the biggest oil tankers in the world, they take anywhere from up to 5 to 10 miles to make a 180 degree turn. So if at any given moment the captain of the ship decides that this is no longer the course that we need to be on, he has to make a very, very, very concentrated, correct decision to turn the ship around. Why? Because it's going to take them anywhere from 5 to 10 miles to make the turn and head back on the course that they needed to be on. God is very, very calculated and concentrated with the things that he allows you to go through in order to bring about a turnaround in your life. But it takes some time to ride the ship sometimes. But he never wastes a moment. Never. Are you trusting in his timing? Have you began to doubt the plan?